Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Mishpatim this morning. You know, I mean, I stay on the triennial reading for the most part. Uh, but it doesn't mean we have to start at the beginning of the triennial, right? We're, as long as we're in our section of the triennial, I'm holding to my own commitment. So let's look at uh, beginning at 22. Uh, oh, yeah, Bert's right. 2220 is also mm-hmm. groovy. Can we start at 2220? Yeah, sure. I like sure. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Don't worry, we're going to have it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You shall not <laughs> ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows and your children often orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, you must return it to him before the sun sets. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. Go on. You shall not revile God, nor put a curse upon a chieftain among your people. You shall not put off the skimming of the first yield of your vats. You shall give me the firstborn among your sons. You shall do the same with your cattle and your flocks. Seven days it shall remain with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be a holy people to me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. Okay. What, what's going on? Like We've been in this whole thing about coming out of Egypt and then we're at the sea and all that dramatic stuff happens and then we're at Sinai and last week we got the Ten Commandments. And we had a whole conversation about what part of that did the people hear? Why did we have a conversation about what part of that? Why was that a question? What part of that did the people hear? Why was that an issue? Because we were told that the people say to Moses, tell God to stop. Tell God to stop talking. Tell God to shut up. We can't, can't, we can't handle this. So you go get it. You go talk to God. We, we're, we're, we can't do this. This is too much, right? So our blood pressure is right, going through the roof. We, we just can't handle this. So Moses goes to get the rest. So what we have at the beginning of Parshat Mishpatim, what we have at the, at, from the very first words of this Parsha are what Moses is telling the people. So God starts adjudicating the, with the Aserata Dibrot, the ten statements, right? Which contain some do's and don'ts. And then the people freak out. And so they say, you, Moses, go and get the rest of it for us. We, we can't. We, we can't wait that long. I mean, we can't sit that long with, in the presence of this intense stuff. So, so what we have now is what Moses came back with, right? But he hasn't put up there 40 days and 40 nights yet, has he? Right, so it's like, what? This is where the rabbis rely on that principle of exegesis. What did we say in biblical exegesis? There is no early or late in Torah. There is no chronology in Torah because it makes no sense that we're, we're given laws here, but Moshe presumably is up on the mountain for a while. So it's all kind of mixed up. These laws are not heard by the people. So I just want us to hold that. Because um, we're going to do something with that. Um, I was at, I had the great good fortune yesterday to be, you know I'm a vice president of the Board of Rabbis, of Southern California, so I we have an executive committee meeting, and then uh, they always try to tie it to the speaker from Hartman, so Hartman Institute, right? Those of you who did with me the engaging Israel, Israel. I engage. yes, I engage uh, through Hartman. Hartman is this amazing, amazing place of non-denominational learning in Israel. Amazing. 
Uh, and so uh, Hartman sends a speaker uh, every couple of months to LA. Uh, and so we had the great good fortune to study with uh, Dr. Micha Goodman from the Hartman Institute in Israel. Uh, and so I'm bringing you the teaching he brought to a bunch of rabbis, right? So he didn't bring teaching. This is like for, okay, it's a lunch at the Federation and you're going to inspire lay leaders. He, he was bringing a teaching to a bunch of rabbis who have been teaching this text for a really long time. So I'm still working through <laughs> what the teaching was, right? Because it was like, whoa, okay, right? That's big. That's new. Um, so I'm still working through it. So I'm going to work through it with you because there's nothing more delicious than brand new, amazing, inspiring teaching that you haven't quite figured out yet. And we'll help you understand. Thank you. That, that's kind of what I'm counting on, is that in talking about it with y'all, I will finally understand a little bit more about what he was saying. So we're going to hold, so that's what he, that's what he talked about. He talked about Parshat Mishpatim, but he talked about it. He started from the place of this is the first commandments we're getting after the close of the Ten Commandments and after God is no longer speaking with the people. Okay. We are, so let's, let's look at some of these. This, this is some of Bert's favorite stuff in the whole world, right? So, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress the stranger. Why? Because you were strangers. Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So tell me, what is the motivation in this case for, what, just what is the English word we would use to say, what, what is the... The mechanism that we are to not oppress the stranger. What is Torah relying on here? Empathy. 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 All, all of these sound like empathy to me. <laughs> all right, empathy. Now we're gonna. This is where he focused with us. It was just genius. All right. So empathy generally comes like when we think about empathizing with the oppressed. Where does that put us? Like, what what kind of a state? In their place. In their place, which is what? Suffering. Suffering. Yeah. Right. So we go we go to feeling or experiencing, right, or remembering suffering, which is a place of. And I'm not using this as a judgment word. I'm just using it as a stative word, which is a place of weakness. Right. Remember when you were weak. When you were vulnerable, when you were suffering, remember how that feels. Not just remember it intellectually, God forbid, right? Feel it. Feel it. Always memory for us as the Jews is about feeling and it's about action. So, right? Remember how you felt and don't oppress the straight, right? Memory and feeling is, well, not feeling because Torah doesn't talk about feeling, but memory is tied to action. Um, But it's about going back to that place of suffering and weakness, okay? And I'm sorry, I just want us to, just, let's just hold that. We're coming back to that. All right. So you're going to remember your experience cause you, and you're going to treat the stranger a certain way because you are going to empathize with the stranger. That's a commandment. But then if, if you don't, I'm going to show you what it means to suffer. Oh, yeah, you'll suffer. Um, you shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, what's going to happen? Then... So, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew's interesting and more... There's no heed. Isn't well, I mean, it is. I will hear, but it's... It, the, the, all. Look at the Hebrew at 22. Even if you don't read Hebrew, look at the Hebrew at verse 22. So look at the third word, right? So do you see the same Shoresh? You can see, even if you don't read Hebrew, you can see those are the same letters with one letter added in those two words, right? I mean, I'm a visual learner, so this stuff, right? Um, so here you got those words, Do you see those are the same letters? Tzadi ayin kuf. And then yitzak. Sadi, ein, kuf. It's the same. It's the same word, doubled. So we get aneta ane, tsaok yitzak, elai shama eshama. 
right? So you see all these words are repeated. When Torah repeats like this, it's not just alliterative or emphasizing. It's saying in English, the way I always translated this when we had we had to come with an only Hebrew Bible and sit in class and translate from the Hebrew, like go around and read and translate. Um, it, it was horrifying and terrifying. It was um, our biblical year. It was horrible. Um, so that meant you had to prepare the whole Parsha the night before and any words you didn't know you better learn it uh, because you didn't know which section you were going to be called on to read and translate. So, um, but what that did is like you, you just stay in the Hebrew and what, what the Hebrew here, and so we had to translate. So the way I translated when this happens is way, right? If, when it repeats, if, if afflict you shall afflict, meaning if you way afflict, right? And if they cry out, cry out, it's not just repeating, it's... Because the, the verb form is different. Like, so I say, if they way cry out, so it's an, it's an emphasizing that's not just doubling. <clears throat> right? The verb is different. It's not just repeating the same word. Like, if they cry, if they cry. Um, it's a way of intensification in Hebrew that we don't have in English. Amy, isn't this God speaking, not Moses, right now? Yes. So, like, if a whale, they are a whalen. <laughs> It's more like that, right? There, there's a whale that they're a whale in. There's a, the, the noun and the verb. Like it's, so it's this intensification. Then, Shamoa Eshma, I will weigh here. <laughs> right? This so, reminds me of saying to my kids, you're crying now, I'll show you how to cry. <laughs> so, so this intensification is, is an indication of how much this bothers God. Right? You're oppressing the widow and the orphan gets emphasized. And then their cry gets emphasized. And then God hearing is emphasized. It's not just stated, if you oppress the stranger and the orphan, and they cry out, I will hear their cry. It is every way you can imagine in Hebrew intensified. All those... uh, Are they (laughs) verbs? What are they? Um, Right, you know, so mistreating... Crying, hearing, all of those verbs are intensified. So this is a state, it's saying, screaming, pardon the pun, in Hebrew, how much this bothers God and how intense the response is going to be, right, by God. And remember, whenever we have the poor and the widowed and the orphaned and the vulnerable, what gets God moving? To act about it. Their sa'aka, their cry. Here it is again. You cried out in your suffering in Egypt. I heard you, right? Because God has to act, or maybe as we've talked about, can't act until there's that sa'aka. In either case, once there's a sa'aka from the vulnerable, God acts. So don't think it's going to be any different in your settlements. If you cause a tsa'aka from the vulnerable, then God will act the same way God did on your behalf in Egypt. God will do the same against you on behalf of your own. And it's Israel's own poor and vulnerable and weak and orphaned, right? Who, Who you are responsible for. So do not allow a tsa'aka from any of them to reach me. Because Shamoa Eshma, I will weigh here. Right? Don't make me come down there. <laughs> right? Is is clearly if I come down like I will hear. And if I come down, it's not gonna be good. Does widow and uh, widow and orphan is that a, a euphemism for all the vulnerable? Yes. I mean is it and they are, in the ancient world, the most vulnerable. So if, you don't, if you're a woman without a man to protect you, be that a father or brother or whoever, uncle, if you, if you don't have a man acting on your behalf in the ancient world and you're a woman, you are incredibly vulnerable. And same with a minor who doesn't have a male adult, female adult, doesn't matter. And it hasn't totally changed. It has not changed. I'm buying a car as a woman. 
or go to some, you know, neighborhoods, you know, right. you know, or, or, or walk alone. This is God talking to Moses now, not the people, right? This is God telling Moses to tell the people. The people are already gone. They said, I, I don't want to listen to this. Right. Moshe's hanging out with God at this point. And, and all we're told at the beginning of the Parsha is, God says to Moses, and these are the Mishpatim, these are the laws that you shall put before them. Um, so from now on, it's going to be God says to Moshe, and Moshe is going to deliver. Yes. You have something, Becky? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, just the hand. You're just, I'm, always, I'm always ready. I'm always ready. Um, all right, so the widow and the orphan were the most vulnerable, and my notes tell me that exploitation of these people was commonplace, and people got away with it. Who? I mean, look at human trafficking. Yes. How does human trafficking children. succeed? Because There's nobody no speaks for these children. When they disappear, oh well, or their parents sell them. Right. So... The exploitation of an unprotected, undefended woman and or minor was commonplace. And it's one of the reasons Torah goes to such great lengths, right, to say, do not do it. Because the people got away with it. Right? There's, right, it, it wasn't punished. And so Torah is very clear. I will hear, says God. I'll take care of this <coughs> myself. Right? Because with the authorities... Who really goes looking for a poor kid growing up in the you know ghetto wherever eight year old who's missing? Hmm? Hmm? I mean, we like to think, oh my, yeah, but really, it, or a fourteen year old girl, right? Who goes, you know? That's right. It, it just, it's it's horrifying, and it still happens. And if it's still happening now, you can only imagine in the ancient world where the rules were different what what the reality for those people would have been like and so Torah is very clear that this is God's case right God is concerned about this um, and will handle it this is really just retribution yes God's very clear if that's what you do then my anger this is just what's going to happen folks my anger is going to blaze forth and you will be now destroyed as the protectors so that your women and your children become undefended minors. Right? It's kind of like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Similar, but different. Yeah. But it's stronger. Right. Well, this is God yeah. and not people. So Jewish family service, not charging interest, goes right back to here. So... <laughs> Jewish family services not charging interest goes right back to verse 24. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act toward them as a creditor, exact no interest from them. So if somebody is struggling and is ready to start a business but doesn't have the capital, Torah understands it as the obligation of the community to provide the funding for that startup. But only Jews. At no interest. Only but, Jews. Correct, of course. Only but, Jews. Yes, of course. But don't go to Jewish no. family service for that. Go to Jewish free world. <laughs> <laughs> right. But isn't that under Jewish family? The Hebrew Free Loan Society. under Jewish Federation. In any case, we, we, we for a long time have understood this to still be a responsibility that we take seriously, to lend to Jews in need and not to charge interest, not to make money off of giving money to people who are struggling with money. <laughs> I mean, it's common sense. If you have communal res- a sense of communal responsibility, this makes absolute sense. I thought it was... Uh to everybody, uh, you, you just don't charge interest, but here it makes it specific to poor people, Jews. So Jews. Poor, to, poor, to, poor Jews. to poor people. Poor Jews. Yes, poor to Jews. poor Jews. Ha'ani, the poor. So is it okay to charge interest to other people? So doesn't talk about it. Doesn't talk about it. Um, presumably, that was a way to make money in the ancient world, mm-hmm. like everywhere, as you lend money at interest. What we're told is Jews were not allowed to charge... 
Israelites, we should be clear. Mm-hmm. Israelites were not allowed to charge interest to poor Israelites to whom they were lending money. All right. Isn't so, it interesting, though, that this is so strong a statement, and one of the worst things Jews were accused of was being money lenders. So I was going there. Oh, I'm sorry. No worries. Um, so in the medieval world, Jews could not be in the military. Jews could not own property. And Jews could not be in the guild. And the only way you could have a business was to be in the guild. If you were an artist, you had to be in the artist guild. If you were a something else, you had to be in the doctor's guild. You had to be in a guild. And Jews were not allowed in the guilds. Therefore, Jews could not do any of the professions that normally in the medieval world, if you weren't a serf and you weren't a noble, that you would do to survive. May I say one thing here? Above the water fountain outside here, there is a, a glass. Uh, it's the Ten Commandments in glass. Mm-hmm. It's from Venice. And that was one of the guilds that Jews could not be members of until after the war they admitted Jews in Venice to do glass work. Mm-hmm. And that piece came from Venice to celebrate the fact that Jews broke that, or the world let that barrier fall, and Jews made that piece in Venice. There you go. So the, so the, so that, so that's A, is that they couldn't do all those things. And they couldn't own land, so they couldn't be farmers. And they couldn't be in the military, so they couldn't make money in a campaign. So how was it, how were Jews to make money, right? So, so that's one, that's one piece. The other piece is the church understood itself to be the new Israel. Mm-hmm. If the church is the new Israel, then church law now reads, if you lend money to the poor among you, you may not exact interest. So if the church is the new Israel and church good church members can't lend money at interest to other new Israelites, Catholics. what does that mean? Who's left? That, the Jews... You, but you could borrow money from the Jews who could charge you interest. Yes? Very interesting. So, so because the church understood this law as applying to them as the new Israel, it meant the Jews, they, had, they couldn't borrow money from each other. So if you need to start a war with that noble over there whose property you really want or whose wife you really want, whatever, uh, and you really want that and you want to go to war but you don't have the capital, you can't go to another church and everybody belonged to the church or you were dead. So, um, so you went to the Jews and the Jews would lend you money because that's how Jews could survive is lending money to Cap- the Catholic you know, community at interest. Jews and so, so the Jews would lend the money. Now the noble goes on this campaign. The noble loses the war, loses the campaign. This happens a couple of times in the region. What's the best way for those nobles to handle their debt? Accuse the Jews of pogrom. A pogrom. Right. Wipe out the Jews of the area, and now you wipe out your debt. So this was very much the pattern in much of Europe, in much of medieval Europe. This happened a lot. So think, you know, 1,100, 1,000 through, you know, the end of the medieval period. Like, so there's all those revolutions in, right? Jews and all those funded Columbus, the Enlightenment, the Inquisition happened. Hmm? Jews funded a lot of the exploration, the Spanish Armada, and the Inquisition happened. Right. So a big pogrom. Right. The Inquisition was a big pogrom. Why did the Church think it's the New Israel? Because this is their testament. This is their the Old Testament. Old Testament. They have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are Israel. Well, when there's Jews around. How do you Why do you think they were so anti-Semitic? <laughs> we have a new covenant. We are the new Israel. What the heck are they still doing I, I here, unconverted? How, when you make a covenant with a people who's still existing, then you just go, guess what? They actually made it with us. Jesus was the Jew through Christ. They are the new Israel. They are. They are brought into the covenant by Christ. Oh, okay. Right. It, 
it's not a different God, and it's not a different people. They didn't see themselves as a different people at this point. They've, they've come to be inheritors of the Old Testament and the New Testament through Christ. Yes. Um, so, I mean, of course, to us, it's ridiculous. But it is the basis of a lot of Christian anti-Semitism is the fact that the older sibling is still around and hasn't converted. We're the truth, we're the truth, we're the truth. Nuh-uh. We're the truth, we're the truth, we're the truth. Nuh-uh. Like, so, mommy loves me best, right? So... That is the basis of some of the theories is that's the basis of a lot of the, the depth and heat of Christian anti-Semitism is supersessionism. They were supposed to, they are the new Israel, then the Jews should go, should go away. And they didn't and didn't convert. Well, well, they did in large, massive numbers, but enough didn't that they remain an irritant. You know, but 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 cosmically, like existentially, they're an irritant yeah. that needs to be dealt with. Didn't in, in, in uh, the minds of many Christians, they've actually taken God as well. Uh, I was talking with somebody recently, and he asked me, "Why is your God such an angry God?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "There is only one God." Mm-hmm. But he, he was he was voicing a view of many Christians that. So this is a very typical argument that we hear that the the Jewish God, the God of the Old Testament, is an angry, wrathful, jealous, judging, horrible, you know, God. Because right, like you know, we we do we see God getting pretty angry and right doing some your God like kick you know kicking some tail. So um, and then the and the New Testament is the loving, you know, God who is refracted through Jesus. So is a much more loving. He's the Father now, right? And is through Jesus and 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 has a experience of empathy with people, right? Because because God is now human, so God can now understand humanity differently. All that stuff. I just heard, and I, you know, I'm. I have to credit who was it who was asking about why I keep saying the name of the rabbi I'm teaching in. Someone just asked recently, why do I keep saying who taught this? I keep saying Rabbi Rami Shapiro, Rabbi Shefa Gold. Rabbi, it's because we don't ever teach without crediting the person we learned it from, because otherwise it's considered stealing. Intellectual. This is not my teaching. This is we always teach B'shem Omro in the name of the person who said it. So. So I'm going to try to think about <laughs> where I, but I, you know, where I learned this. Um, so recently, someone was giving a uh, lecture about if if Jesus. Ha- oh, it was the scholar who came, oh, yes. uh, Jill, Amy Jill Levine. So she was talking when I heard her on Saturday morning at St. Matthew's. She was saying this comes from if what makes Jesus unique. Right? If he has to be unique, then you have a problem. Like you, how do you make him unique? Is it he is the only one who cares about the stranger? He's the only. He cares more than anybody about the vulnerable. He cares more than anybody about the poor. If you have to have Jesus be some kind of special, in opposition to the Jews around him, the context he's in. And so he gets lifted up in this way that then causes them to denigrate the Jews around him. Does that make sense mm-hmm. at all? So she was saying, anytime you hear a gospel or a parable told in a way that shines an unfavorable light on the Jews, it's a misreading of the parable. But it's a misreading because it's an attempt to make Jesus unique among the Jews. He's teaching from Jewish tradition. But if you need him to be different than all those Jews and their teachings, then you have to denigrate somehow the teachings he's coming from, even as you figure out a way to lift those teachings up as your new gospel. And so what happens is this kind of that God from that part of Jesus and those folks tradition is yucky, right? Jesus is special because now God is represented 
through that tradition in a new and loving and fabulous way. When in fact that's not it. It's, it's that Christianity reconstructs Jewish tradition and the early Christians would have understood that. But once you need to make that unique and set it apart from the Jewish tradition it comes from, now you get this, right. this disfavor of everything from the old tradition, meaning Judaism, and, and everything associated with Jesus and the New Testament and the Gospels and the parables becomes the forgiving, loving, fabulous God. Well, I would have difficulty explaining it. Yeah. <laughs> good. That's good. Uh, Susan, how was this received at St. Matthew's? It was awesome. They were like, "Oh, my, that makes so much sense." Really? Because they don't want to denigrate the Jewish tradition. They very much want to reclaim. They kept asking her, "So Jesus, as a Jew, what would he?" Ha-? You know, they were desperate to know how his Judaism influenced what he taught and what he stood for and what he would have believed about the world and reality and God. And now, of course, a lot of what he taught was not mainstream Judaism, which is why the Jews were not terribly thrilled with him. He was causing trouble on the one hand, and he was teaching stuff that was like, he'd left the reservation on some on some important things, right? Um, but he, he never left those traditions. And so the folks like the people at St. Matthew's really want, they're hungry to reclaim this because they've kind of been taught about this angry wrathful you know they want to reclaim these things through a Jewish lens and she could help them understand how Jesus would have understood this and his and his followers we don't know how Jesus would have understood anything but you know what his followers how they and so um, and so it was very powerful for them it was very moving for them that she is Jewish and, and well-versed in Judaism, right? It, that was really meaningful to them that she could make that connection and be that bridge. They were, they were very moved by being here Friday night. People came up to me with tears in their eyes to talk about how powerful it was for them to be here. Because we do a lot of interfaith stuff together, but we always water it down to its, which is fine, because we, we need to include everybody, but we water it down to this kind of least common denominator service. They have never seen us smacking the bima, ya bai ba bi bi bam. Like, they don't know from that. We don't do that at the interfaith Thanksgiving service. Ya bai ba bi bi Right? Um, so they got to feel and experience an authentically Jewish service. And it was so powerful for them to be welcomed and included into that. Not just observers or guests. You know, we're, we're fairly in people's faces about participating. So um, they, they were really moved. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's happening in not only in enlightened Christian circles, but in where else do we see it? And how do we see it there? We see Messianic Judaism. All of this Messianic Judaism is exactly that. Looking to enrich Christianity with Jewish stuff, but Jewish stuff taken completely now out of context and in a new, well, not completely out of context, but but reconstructed to the place where it's like, what? Like, you know, the lamb, you know, of Passover, they have a huge Seder, and the lamb, of course, is Jesus, right? And so they're eating the body and drinking the blood because that's where it originates. Is that the Passover Seder, the Eucharist, right? So for them, that's very powerful, but it's like using, in St. Matthew's, they would get that that's our tradition and that's underneath their tradition and that enriches their tradition for them to learn about that but they're not going to co-opt it they know that's for Jews Messianic Judaism wants to co-opt Jewish practice and make it Christian that its original intent was Christian and that the lamb talked about here is in fact Jesus right and so um that's where they're on the opposite ends, but both experience the enriching of their tradition by understanding the Jewish roots. So how do you account for the rise of anti-Semitism now? Of all, you know, I mean, it's always been underground, but why is it emerging as a major force all over the world? Yes, thank you, Rita. All right, so moving right along. 
I mean, it's a huge conversation. It's a huge discussion. It's a huge issue. Um, we just had a lecture. How long ago, Bert? Did we we have that podcast? Bert will give yeah. us the the podcast when we had that whole thing about the rise of mm-hmm. of yeah, anti-Semitism yeah. that we're seeing now uh, in Europe. So let, well, let's make sure we right. well, we. But but I mean, particularly, whatever. So yes, I mean it's not gone away in lots of other places. <laughs> Fundamentalist Islam is never right. I mean that's not new. Right? There are tensions that have led to a reason to once again you know point that stuff towards the Jews. But but particularly in Europe and places where it had been not the fashion post Holocaust anyway. Right um, now we're seeing a resurgence. So I thought that was your question, but. And here, and here. So he talked about both Europe and the United States. So we'll we'll get that for you. Yes. I wish all of you could have been at St. Matthew's Sunday morning. Saturday morning. It was Shabbos. Sunday morning. Oh, you went again Sunday morning? You get triple points, Margo. I know. I was trying to. She spoke from the pulpit. Oh, right, the sermon. And she you know, talked about the stranger in Archer this week, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Last, last week. And that was probably her subject that she was going to talk about. But I just have to tell everybody this because it was so great. There were two of us there. <laughs> Represent. And, um, and she got up to speak and she uses her, uses her hands a lot. She knocked over the microphone and she first when she first started to speak. And then she said, you know, that's a Jewish thing. <laughs> I think because Jews don't uh, aren't good with their hands. You know, their hands. They have to talk with their hands or so three people had to get up to, to wind the microphone on the cords out from under the pulpit. But her talk was so moving and uh, frankly, I was not able to hear her on Saturday that well. But um, I was sorry that there weren't more people there mm-hmm. on Sunday. Yeah. Um, and I, ju- I really got a lot out of it. And uh, I was glad that I gave up for it too. So she spoke about the stranger? The stranger. Yeah. Knowing that this week's partial was, was coming, was the I'm Catholic sure. Church involved at all in this discussion? <clears throat> or in last week's? No. It wasn't designed to be. This, this is a St. Matthew's program that we participated in. They have a stern lecture series every year that is endowed. And so we decided, they invited us. Did we want to participate? Because I've been making a lot of noise about wanting to do more stuff. And so we, I said, absolutely, we'd love to partner. So that's, that's how that happened. No, that was part of her contract. All right. We're going back to Torah study. <laughs> All right, because we've gotten two or three sentences in now. <laughs> All right, so I don't know how much of this other stuff I'm going to be able to do. Um, yeah, okay, let me tell you. I don't know if we have enough time, but okay, we'll try. All right, so loving the stranger, yes, is uh, out of a sense of empathy. We empathize with the slave and... <clears throat> Because we empathize with the slave, we behave in a certain way towards the oppressed. Yeah? All right. So go to the first sentence of Mishpatim, which is... Which is... Beginning of chapter 21. Exactly. 21.1. All right, the first sentence of Mishpatim. This is the first thing said to the people after the Ten Commandments. The first thing that they're going to get from Moses after they don't hear, they don't want to hear God anymore. What is it that they hear? What is the first commandment after that? Twenty-one. When you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without payment. Okay. These are the rules you shall set before them. Verse 2, when you acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free. 
Okay, six years, then the seventh, the slave is free. That's the first thing they hear, Ebed Ivri, a Hebrew slave. Okay. Go back now to the Ten Commandments. So just keep going back till you get to 20, chapter 20, verse 1. Okay, so God spoke these words saying, so commandment number one is essentially, we're not going to go back through them, we did this last, so commandment essentially number one is, I'm Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the house of bondage. Yes. Commandment one, I am the God who brought you out of the house of bondage, I am the liberator, and... We consider this part of commandment number one. You will not have other gods. Then number two. You will not make a graven image. How did you worship God in the ancient world? Including in ancient Israel. You had a statue. And in ancient Israel you had a matzeva. You had a monument that you put by the altar. Or an, an asherah. Right? So these were, you had to have these in order to have a shrine. You had to. So God is now saying, no, no other gods that you have ever known or ever heard of. Mm-hmm. So no worshiping the way y'all are used to that way, like in terms of who and how many. Number two, no graven images anymore. No statues, no images, no matzeva, no nothing, which is the only way people knew how to worship the divine in the ancient world. So that Michal Goodman points out what God is saying is how not to worship God. That's all we get here. How not to worship. I'm Yudhei I'm the liberator. Here's what you don't do in relationship to worshiping me. Right? So that's what we get for number two. Right? Then what is the only positive we get? We're just told what not to do in relationship to God. Kind of a distancing of how... God is saying, don't do anything you're used to in terms of worship when it comes to me. Oh, okay, well, that's terribly helpful, right? Well, that makes me feel close to you. I have no idea what to do. So if you can't do all the things you're used to, what is the only positive commandment we have in the Ten Commandments vis-a-vis humanity, Israel, and God? Celebrate Shabbat. 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 I am the liberator. You won't worship me in any way that you know that you're used to, any way that you know, anything that's familiar. How are you going to worship me? You are going to imitate me. And you are going to rest on Shabbat. Not only are you going to rest, so you are right here it tells us. Not only you, right? Look at verse 10. The seventh day is a Shabbat to Adonai your God. You shall not do any work. Who? You, your son or daughter, who else? Slave. Your male or female slave. Yeah? Why? For in six days God made heaven and earth and all that's in them, and God Shabbated on the seventh day. We can't say ceased from God. Shabbat is a positive verb. There is no way to say that in English. Well, maybe there is, but right there... It's a positive. It's not a right. cease from. It's, not a it's negative. God did something, did something in Shabbating. <laughs> right? So celebrate. So God Shabbated on the seventh day. Right? And so that's why you're going to Shabbat. It's because God Shabbated. Okay? So it's imitatio Dei. We are imitating the divine. You want to know how to worship me? Imitate me. Okay. Still working it out. All right. So, uh, um, all right. So now, I know it's a little confusing, but it's okay. You're 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 now an advanced study. So now keep. You don't need to keep your finger there. Go to Deuteronomy chapter five, verse twelve. It's good that you're walking around your Torah. That's good. It's okay if you're fumbling around. It's yours. Mm-hmm. You, it's like being given a giant house that's yours. You need to learn every nook and cranny. 
Chapter 5, verse 12. So while you're finding it, Dr. Goodman said to us, if, and he learned a new issue, if Deuteronomy is a repetition of the commandments we get in the other books of the Torah, then already Deuteronomy is an interpretation. Every repetition is, a, is an interpretation, unless it is word for word and copy paste. If it's when, once I come out of here and say, what did y'all learn today? You leave here and you say, Elaine, this is what we learned in Torah study this morning. It's not that she's making it up. She was here. She participated, but it's through her lens. It's her interpretation once she repeats what happened here. So he said, actually, Deuteronomy is not the fifth book of the Torah only. It's the first book of commentary on the Torah. Okay. So he says, let's look at the commentary to Shabbat. So that means chapter 5, verse 12. What does that say? And he says this is a positive commandment. Six days shall you work. Six days shall you be about constructive, wonderful stuff in the world. That is a positive commandment. Six days shall you work. You're going to do malacha. Malacha is a good thing. God did malacha when God created the world. Malacha is a positive thing. So six days you're going to do malacha. Okay, terrific. But on the seventh day, Shabbat Adonai Lohecha is a Shabbat to Adonai your God. Drop down to the end of verse 13. What is the reason for Shabbat here? So that, Lima'an, so that, Yanuach Avdecha Ve'amatcha Kamocha. Lima'an, in order that your male and female slave will rest Kamocha like you do. So he says, who's commanded here? Who's commanded to do Shabbat, to make this Shabbat? You. And you are doing it so that you can make, you can cause your slaves to be like you. This is a different reason for Shabbat. This is not imitating God, the creator who Shabbated. This is, you're going to keep Shabbat so that your slaves can become like you. Because once that happens, what, what shifts? Empathy. Hold that. Because well, this is where, this is his whole lesson. Arab this is the whole thing. Is, is this empathy? Or, so it, once your slave becomes like you. The slave is like God. Raising the slave. Okay, so he said, Marx said, equality is created through work. Right? That's Marxism. A good Jew. Right? That, that equality is created through work. What does Judaism say? Equality is created through rest. You become, the slave becomes kamocha, like you when the slave Rests. The sign at Auschwitz work will make you free. So, um, right, I mean, that's right. This is an argument exactly the opposite. Right. Now, look at Deuteronomy 15. Chapter 15, verse 12. Oh, uh, sorry. Verse. Yeah, yeah. Verse 12. Yeah, you see it? Chapter 15, verse 12. Yep. If a fellow Hebrew man or woman is sold to you, here we go with Evet Ivri again, what we just had in Mishpatim. Evet Ivri. If you have a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years. And in the seventh year, you shall set him free. Right? 
drop down to verse 15. I mean, go to, drop down. Go to verse 15, wherever that is for you. Vizacharta. Mm-hmm. And remember. What did we say about remembering? It's always about action. Vizacharta ki eved hayita be'eretz Mitzrayim. Remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and Adonai redeemed you. Therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you this day. So this goes back to, as God liberated you, you are going to liberate the slave. So right after the Ten Commandments, we get this evet ivri, this idea that you are going to liberate the slave, right? Because I liberated you from from the house of slavery. And here we get the other tie-in to you are going to do Shabbat because you are imitating because you want your slaves to be able to imitate you and you are resting on Shabbat because you're imitating God so someone over here said it so the slave actually becomes like God the slave is also imitating God now what is fascinating what was so amazing about his lecture is that's not this that's not empathy empathy is you were slaves and you suffered remember how that felt it was you Therefore, you shall not oppress them. You shall not do terrible things to them. What is this? What is this? This is not acting. You don't act. You don't let your slaves go or let them rest out of equality. Setting an example. It's so it's the it's not empathy. What's the motive here? I mean, not the motive. What's what's it operating here? Created by God. It's not fear. So it's it's. Does God inside of them as a you? You are forget that even. You are imitating God. Shalom Elohim. God is the liberator. You shall act as the liberator, as God liberated you. What kind of a position is that? It's action. Powerful. 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 The opposite of weakness. Weakness, right. So it's that, that you. So how how do you express your power by giving up control? You give up control of your slave one day out of seven, letting them cease from their labor. You can't boss them around and tell them what to do. It's Shabbos. They get to do whatever they want. It's Shabbos. You give up control of that slave's labor one day out of seven and you imitate God the liberator. It is from a position of strength and power. How do you express power? You express it by giving up control. And this is not how we tend to think about power. So both Shabbos and letting the slave go at the end of seven years is about release. Release is how you imitate God. You are not empathizing with the weak, the suffering, the powerless. You are imitating the most powerful by letting them, by causing them to rest, and then by letting them go. That's the first commandment they're given. After the Ten Commandments, which begins with, I liberated you from the house of bondage. So you will liberate the Evet Ivri, right? You liberate the land to, every seven years too. And the land must rest every seven years. You don't control it, and in doing so, you act powerfully. Mm-hmm. You have the power to liberate, just as God liberated you. That is a turning on its head yes. of every way I've ever thought about the stranger business or the oppression of this or the oppression of that, right? Is that we empathize, we empathize, we empathize. And so you know, I looked at Shefa Gold, who was talking about Mishpatim and how 36 times we're told to love the stranger because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. And she says, but that reasoning doesn't quite hold. Those who suffer oppression often themselves go on to oppress others. Whatever hurt I suffer becomes the source of my destructive powers. The wound that is layered over with scar tissue makes me insensitive to the suffering of others. To acknowledge the pain of others, I would once again have to feel my own. So she already has a hint. She published this book 
eons ago. It's a hint of what he's saying. That okay, empathy can sometimes be a motivating factor. Other times, empathy, empathizing, going to this place of remembering our suffering and identifying when we were weak and or mistreated is not a positive. When we go to our wounded place, we don't tend to behave terribly well. When we're acting out of right a sense of powerlessness. I mean, I'm not, I'm not denigrating empathy. I'm truly not. But it, there is the flip side of this, that, that empathizing, identifying with the victim doesn't always result in, therefore, I'm going to treat you well and kindly and right out of my best values. Like that, that doesn't always happen. So she already is hinting at that, to what Micha is saying. There's another way to make sure we behave the way we're supposed to, which is identifying from a place of power and strength, which is about relinquishing control and doing right by the other from a position of imitating the divine who, who does that. I just had an epiphany today, and that is... Yay! No extra charge for that. I've lost control of certain personal things in my in my life. And now I just thought, well, we can look at this in a positive way because we give that person or that situation the ability to deal with whatever they're dealing with on their own. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Because you're trusting their strength, their power, right? Because they too can act, right? Yeah, I mean, right? It's all in there together. Yes? This reminds me Well, I mean, that's a whole other conversation about what does Shabbat look like. That's a whole other conversation. But in the ancient world, the woman was tending the fire all the time, right? She's cooking all the time. You can't make a fire on Shabbos. She was, she was relieved of her major duty, which was to prepare food for the family. It was all had to be prepared before Shabbat. You couldn't light a fire. We tend to think of it when I think of my grandmother, a blessed memory, Faye Bernstein, she was miserable on Passover. She was miserable. She loved having the family there, but she was miserable. Changing all the dishes, koshering the counters, taping the ones you can't kosher, koshering this, koshering that. She had four sets of dishes for Passover. Dairy for daytime, meat for daytime, Seder dish, you know, like china for meat and china for dairy when you had a big brunch or whatever. So she was dealing with ridding her kitchen of the usual four sets of dishes and bringing in four other sets of dishes. Look, I know it's a, she had enough money to do that. I'm not saying, uh, you know, first world problems. But, and then she had to kosher everything. And then she had to cook and serve a meal to, you know, our huge extended family and clean up afterwards. She was so resentful of, not the cooking and, and serving, but the, because she loved that. But um, she told me only in when she was like 90. She told me she was so resentful of all of the things she had to do to get ready for Pesach. And she wasn't, she wasn't raised observant. She married my grandfather, who was very observant. Um, and so my point is, that's a choice we can reconstruct. Mm-hmm. We can make Shabbat a holiday that we don't have to work harder on, right? It's about culture that women were expected to cook all day and serve the whole family Shabbos evening, that's culturally imposed. Well, she's always going to have to take care of all the children, but the other children took care of the children. The 12-year-old takes care of the 8-year-old. The 8-year-old smacks around the 6-year-old. Stop doing that. Right? What, they, they take care of each other. People who have large families, we can talk about family constructs. That has nothing to do with Shabbat. Does that make sense? The fact that women's roles were to take care of the children and take care of the house, that's, that's its own thing. That is not about Shabbat. But you're taking away her health. You're not, you're, so her slave gets dressed. Presumably, right. she, not everyone had slaves. So I hear what you're saying, that if I'm a slave owner and they're, they're supposed to rest, then you've, you've 
impacted me in a way that lessens my ability to celebrate Shabbat. So partly that's the lesson. You need to deal without a slave for one day out of seven because you're going to give up control of that slave, right? That's um, the and so then you have to figure out how are you going to do life in such a way that you get to have Shabbat. What does that look like? That, so you work, you work harder before. And of course she still has the ten kids, but, but they... Again, they take care of each. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm just not. Sh- I'm. I'm not sure what to do with that in terms of you know her. First of all, Torah wasn't concerned about it. That's a. We're concerned about it, which is good. But Torah wasn't concerned about that, right? So woman. Um, so um, and it was an honor and a privilege to care for your children and your family. And I mean, you know, like we we as feminists can. Can go to that room. So I hear you that it's it's distressing on some level that, but it would only be women who had slaves, right? It's only a certain class of women who were dependent on other people working for them in order for them to have the quality of life they expect. Is it really so awful that once a week? <laughs> all right, I don't know. Um, all right. So look at um, I gave you Rabbi Rami Shapiro, and I gave you Rabbi Matt Zerwick. Yeah, on the back. Look at the very last thing you have. And thank Genevieve. She stapled your thing so that we didn't spend 25 minutes <laughs> figuring out how many to take. All right. So, um, actually, yeah. All right. Th- I think this ties in. I'm not sure. I would suggest we also refer to this portion with the word Rachmanut, compassion. The law set forth in Parshat Mishpatim give us clear guidance as to our treatment of the segments of society to which we do not belong. The slave, the poor, the widow, the orphan. Its point isn't only that we should remember that we were once strangers in a strange land, for that only calls for empathy and understanding of the other. Right? And in this Parsha, we also get... um, Feeling the pain of those seeking a loan, the donkey of an enemy burdened by a too heavy load, the most vulnerable among us, the widow and the orphan. But that merely leads those feeling empathy to take on the pain, the fear, the feelings of helplessness of those for whom we are empathizing. Unless those feelings lead to action, we have done nothing to help those and in fact may be damaging ourselves in the process. Right? It's just so weird. Once you get an once you learn an idea or it's like there, you see it everywhere. Like, I went to this presentation yesterday, and all of a sudden, as I'm going through stuff, it's like empathy versus compassion, empathy versus power. And it's like, whoa. So here he's saying the same thing the chef was saying, right? That empathy can be, if I don't do something with it, all it does is make me suffer. Like, that's why I can't watch certain things on the news. It's like, turn that off. Because if I'm not going to do something about it right now, all it does is just turn my stomach over. Yeah. As I see these pictures of children, I mean, it's just like, I just can't, it's like, unless I'm going to do something about it, it doesn't do me any good to suffer, right, watching that. So turn it off or go write a check. Um, So if it leads to action, then empathy is a good thing. But really what he's saying is psychological research suggests that feelings of empathy with no attached action tend to lead to negative feelings in an individual while compassion leads to something more positive. When we empathize with others, we are feeling one's pain. Neuroscientist Dr. Tanya Singer says, if we feel compassion for someone else's suffering, we do not necessarily feel with their pain, but we feel concern, a feeling of love and warmth, and we can develop a strong motivation to help the other. So he's saying not exactly what what I'm what what Michal Goodman is saying, but I think it's related, that rather than empathy, which again is from a place of suffering and pain and weakness, the goal is to get to a feeling of compassion. That doesn't put me in that place of identifying with my suffering. It puts me in a place of caring that someone else not suffer. That there's a subtle difference there. And, and it, what I think they're saying is, and that can lead, like in the brain and other places, to a positive response of if I really care about the suffering of someone else, then I'm going to make sure I do what needs to be done, <laughs> right? But if I go to this 
empathy and empathize too closely, I can get locked in my own, my chariot wheels might lock up. We had this conversation, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Right, like the chariot wheels lock and I can't necessarily move forward if I'm stuck in this place of identifying with weakness and, and pain and suffering. And the only reason I find this, I think, so fascinating is because I'm so Jewish. <laughs> I'm so Jewish and I'm even hesitant to say it into the microphone. I'm a little, I'm challenged by this because I think often we Jews empathize with the victim. And a lot of our identity is tied up with being the victim. And a lot of our not so pretty Jewish responses, I think, are PTSD. Again, I'm working it through with y'all. I, I think this is an important teaching about making distinctions because we too quickly come out of empathy. They're trying to kill us. They're still trying to kill us. They've always tried to kill us because we're the victims. So we're going to fight for everybody else too because we know what that feels like and they're still trying to kill us. That doesn't usually lead to, in my experience, anything constructive in the Israel conversation. How do you argue that they're trying to kill us? They killed six million of us. How? There's nowhere to go with that. You can't talk to anybody across that line. Believe me, I've tried. In regard to Israel. In regard to Israel, the Israel conversation in particular, but you see it other places. But this reaction and this like complete loss of any rational conversation, I think, is because we go right back to here, which is where we always go. We go back to suffering and weakness and we're victims and they still want to get us and they would if they could. <laughs> Look, I'm not, sometimes you always, but if you're paranoid, but they're really out to get you, <laughs> like, are you paranoid? Right? I'm not saying there isn't anti-Semitism. I'm not saying there's not danger. We're stronger than we've ever been. And we need, I think, to learn how to get to a place of compassion and a place of doing the right thing out of a sense of being powerful and strong and imitating God who's the liberator. That's what will move us forward in a positive, constructive, healthy way to make sure that others don't suffer. We should stand up for ourselves. Of course, that's part of being powerful. It doesn't say here, you need to be a slave. (laughs) It says... You're going to own slaves. Okay. So, yes, you should have. You should do. You should defend yourself. You should, you should be strong and powerful so that you can be a liberator to others. And I, I'm, I'm, there's something here that I feel is really important, and I'm really scared about saying it to Jews. I'm really, I'm, I don't know what that means. Like, I'm thinking about high holidays, and then I'm thinking, oh, really? You want a job? after high holidays like, but I think there's really something important here for us to be thinking about now I'm not criticizing anybody else I'm not judging other generations but I think we're at a place if we don't start doing the right thing out of a sense of power and strength I'm really worried about certain conversations and certain paths we're going down You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.